On this episode... He knew that if he fought Watergate, it would be prolonged and he could win, he might lose, but it would, it would, that would really be about himself. And he knew it was in the country's best interest with everything going on between, you know, the conflict in the Middle East uh, after the Yom Kippur War and the relationships with, you know, the Soviet Union and opening of China, that it was better to have consistency in our country. And so he left. Recorded live in the corner booth at the center of the Coachella Valley universe, this is Big Conversations, Little Bar. Now, your hosts, Patrick Evans and Randy Florence. Welcome to another edition of Big Conversations, Little Bar. My name is Patrick Evans, and we are here at Skip Page's Little Bar, the center of the Coachella Valley universe, as far as Skip is concerned, and... It's also true for me and my co-host, Randy Florence. Isn't life better when Little Bar opens at 1130 rather than 4 o'clock? We do need to lobby for earlier opening hours during yeah. the rest of the week. I don't, I don't really know what to do when this place is closed well, until we 4 o'clock. We wouldn't have a social life if it wasn't for Skip, so there are a lot of reasons we're grateful to Skip. I just got suddenly really depressed. What? <laughs> Maybe the, maybe this show will pull me out of it. It will. It certainly will. I just kicked our guest under the table. Sorry. That wasn't intentional. Uh, I'm excited about today's guest. Uh, and this is a guest. Uh, I, I was the one who recruited Paul Carter to come on the program because he and I had never met. But I suddenly, he popped up in my Instagram feed. And one day, I was just kind of scrolling through videos as one does. And here's this guy talking about Whittier. And the history of Whittier as it pertained to Richard Nixon. I think that particular vignette was about uh, the school that he went to, or maybe it was the roller skating rink where he took Pat on a first. It was one of those. And I was like, this is really cool. Well, then, if you listen to the, he says, follow me for more content. He's writing a book. The book is called Richard Nixon, California's Native Son. And it's terrific. It's great. But Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Good to it. have you here, Paul. Thank you, sir. We're, we're generations of people away from Richard Nixon being president. So you're actually teaching a lot of people about who this guy was, right? I, I am. And, and one of the unique features of, of, of my take on Richard Nixon is I don't have a dog in this fight. I, I was nine years old when he resigned. I don't have, I, I didn't have feelings one way or the other about Vietnam. I was just a child. And so I'm a, I'm a trial attorney and I, I went into researching his life the way I would build a case. And I just layered the evidence and let the evidence, I, I followed the evidence where it led me and, and that's what led to California's native son. Well, and I, I, I like, I've, I've read a lot of books on Richard Nixon I find him a fascinating figure. I studied uh, foreign policy at the University of Virginia, and obviously there were horrible moments in the Nixon presidency, some of the lowest moments we've seen, but there were some really incredible high moments during that presidency. And I think from a foreign policy standpoint, it's hard to name a president who was better at it. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's incredible the way he... You know, open China. He did the first nuclear arms limitation treaty with Russia. First president to go to Moscow. Um, numerous uh, international accomplishments. Yom Kippur War with Israel, but also even domestically. What is very interesting about Richard Nixon is, at no time during his administration did he have a Republican House or a Republican Senate. 
yet he did Title IX. He did the EPA. He restructured the Office of Management and Budget. He did the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. He tried to put a woman on the United States Supreme Court when Mildred Lilly, uh, who was the United, uh, a California Court of Appeal Justice. It, it, so many different programs that he initiated on the domestic policy level that are such lasting accomplishments, bringing women into government. All five of the man uh, missions to the moon were during the Nixon administration. All he was pretty military. big on, on bipartisanship. Some of his relationships were the reason he was able to accomplish that. Everything he did was all about uh, bipartisanship, and it was really about service over self and, and, and accomplishing something and doing it for the accomplishment and not the adulation, which makes him a unique person because... He's really an introvert in an extrovert's profession. And so most politicians, you know, Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton, they're going to come into a room and tell you how great they are. Whereas Richard Nixon's going to come in the room, but he's not going to tell you how great he is and be a backslapper. But he's, he's even better than most at all of the actual administrative functions and, and, and accomplishing things in government. Well, the thing that... Uh and you raised a couple of really good points. He was a, kind of an introverted person, which I think confused people about Nixon because, I mean, and he's a complicated figure, and Watergate so overshadows all of his accomplishments, and in some ways it should. But just because you do, I mean, people are complicated creatures, and we are capable of both good and bad, and Nixon kind of was elevated and we all got to see the flaws along with the flashes of brilliance. So it, it, it makes for a very interesting case study. But what I like about your book is you paint a very human picture and a lot of books don't do that. I, I read a, a very scholarly biography of Nixon and there's almost no humanity in that book. It's just it really is all about, well, he did this, and then he did this. And it was like, but there's a human being at the core of this story, and you tell this human being story, which is what I think is genius about your book. Thank you. And, you know, the, the, one of the people that first pointed that out to me was my copy editor, actually. We were talking after she had, had been working with me on the book, and she said, you know, really what your book brings out is, the question is, was Richard Nixon a villain that got his just desserts? Because that's the way he's really portrayed by everyone. Or was he actually an all-American person that made a tremendous mistake for which his legacy is stained? And from my perspective, he, he's more of that all-American person with that all-American life, which turns out to be a true American tragedy when you have Watergate and then his recovery from it and returning to the national stage and, and serving his you know, self-imposed exile and, and being in the depths of, of, of recovery after Watergate. So it's really this fascinating human being that is human, as you point out, Patrick, and, and, it, and it's just a fascinating story to, 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 to follow, and that's what, that's what made me run down the rabbit hole after it. Well, and the interesting thing about that rabbit hole uh, and, and tell the story about how you, you did actually meet Richard Nixon when you were a volunteer at the Nixon Library. Yes. I was, I was going to Cal State Fullerton, and my mom has always been involved in some sort of community service, and she recommended that I volunteer at the Nixon Library. I was studying political science on my way to getting a, a bachelor's degree so I could go to law school. And it, it never even actually dawned on me that I would meet President Nixon. I, I knew he didn't live in the area, and... So I'm volunteering as a docent, and which, by the way, when I'm volunteering as a docent and I'm in college back in those years, every time I walk into a room, I lower the average age of the docents by 50 years. <laughs> and 
I got to meet Richard Nixon uh, several times, and it, he was so incredibly different than what I expected because I'm the product of public schools. Nothing was ever really favorable about Richard Nixon when I was growing up. And so I thought he'd be kind of like an ornery, bitter, mean old man when I met him. And he was, he was very gracious. He was funny. He was welcoming. He was, he, he was the exact opposite of what I expected. And, and that dichotomy really struck me between what he was like as a, his public image and then what he was like as, as the private man. I, I want to talk about that a little bit because how old were you when, when Watergate, when he resigned? I was nine. Nine. So uh, anything that you learned about Nixon from that point on, probably took place in school, obviously. <clears throat> I also read recently that there's only eight states in the United States that require civics classes. So I'm kind of wondering where all of the education is coming from about any of our history. What did you really know about Richard Nixon when you started this? What were your feelings? Did you feel like, oh, this, was a, this guy was a crook? When I started my research... I, I felt that Watergate, and I still believe this, the Watergate is wrong, and, and, and there, were, there were bad decisions made in Watergate. And I, I really thought when I started my research that he was probably an honorary person, and I didn't really have a very good sense of the humanity of the man. And that's what really drew me in because... I initially started making a map of his his life in Southern California, and I was doing that just because he was a president and the only Southern Californian to become president. And I thought that it would be unique to make kind of like a, a Hollywood map of the stars type of a map and and show where he had been in Southern California. Well, Whittier, as it turns out, where he grew up was East Whittier, and it was incorporated into Whittier proper. And when they did that, they renumbered all the streets. And so finding... You know, the old addresses would be three digits and the current addresses are five digits. And so I'm trying to find where were these things at oh and I'm having a, I'm, I'm having a struggle <laughs> a with it. a treasure hunt. Yeah, no, it is a treasure hunt. And so then I found that Cal State Florida had 200 oral histories of Nixon intimates from when he was growing up in, in your and Whittier. And I was able to get the university to provide me with copies of all those. And then I found out that Whittier College had 400 of those interviews. And I obtained copies of all those uh, interviews. And such 10,000 pages of oral histories. And I'm looking at them looking for, wow. you know, where's the malt shop? Where, where, <laughs> where, 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 where did kids go for dates in 1926 in Whittier? And, and as I'm reading, looking for locations, the stories that everyone is talking about Richard Nixon is, you know, and I believed at the time that, you know, he's insecure, probably had a mean father, unloved, grew up poor, had a chip on his shoulder, you know, not one of the cool kids. That's essentially what I thought of him when I started this research. And as I'm reading all these oral histories and I, I consume all 10,000 pages of them, he was the exact opposite. He was like the most popular in his class. He was, you know, eighth grade class president. He was uh, on a football team, at, you know, as a freshman at Florida in high school, and they won their championship. And then he was a constitutional debate champion as a sophomore. Then he's at Whittier College, and he's freshman class president, sophomore class representative, you know, associate student body vice president in his junior year, and he's student body president as a senior. His classmates wrote him a letter in his senior year saying that out of every class, you know, one person becomes a great person, and we all believe you're destined to be that person. He wow. voted best man on campus. They like, love this guy. Absolutely. Just one accomplishment after another, and everyone's speaking so highly of him. So really, I finished the map, 
but the book screamed to be written based on all of these oral histories. And, and so from the oral histories, then I went into the archives and I started digging through all the Nixon family papers and getting even more information to really put the meat on the bones. Well, I think another, another part of the book that I really liked, so many books are written through the lens of Watergate. And you sort of eschew that model and you follow Nixon, the human being, through, his, through that map that you made. Uh, and those human connections that he had, the people in his neighborhood, the people in his school, his first date. He, he, uh, they went on a roller skating day, isn't that correct? Yeah, ice skating. Ice, that's it, ice skating. And he did not know how to ice skate, but he wanted to get good <laughs> at it so he didn't embarrass himself. Right, and so he's practicing at the ice skating rink, and one of his college classmates sees him, and, and he re- remembered, he said, his name was Kenny Ball, and he said, you know, after three days of practice, he wasn't getting any better. In fact, he was getting worse. And, and then the guy says, you know, I can remember him flying out of control and hitting his face on the ice so hard that he's all covered in blood. And I went over and I picked him up and I said, Dick, why do you keep doing this to yourself? And he looks up at me and says, because I've got a great date to go ice skating with on Saturday night and I must be able to keep up. Wow. And it's, you know, it's that kind of story that you never hear of Richard Nixon. Yeah. And to your point, Patrick, Watergate sucks the oxygen out of every room in every conversation about Richard Nixon. And I found in making the map, because I initially was going to make it just in Whittier, but as I looked into researching the map, I realized you could bring his life full circle from birth all the way growing up and, and, and through politics and to his final resting place, all from a California viewpoint. And that allowed me to acknowledge the, the political things that took place but they're not central to the story that is being told, which is about the man. Yeah, you tell the story about the man and how he got to where he was. And it is interesting. I mean, Richard Nixon is one of those incredible figures in history. But you can go to the Nixon Library, and if memory serves, you can essentially stand in the room where he was born in a house that is... Now, they moved that house to the grounds of the library. But you can see out the window his final resting place. Right. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. This is a man who traveled the world, and he is buried literally steps away from where he was born. Crazy. It's, it's just a, I think it's, it's a pretty remarkable thing. And if people have not gone to the library, they really need to do that because it's a, it's a, it's a good stepping off point. Uh, the, uh, the interesting thing to me, though, also about why you kind of got into this book, there's a deeper personal connection that you had and you made while you were, you served three years in the Navy. Yes. And one of your commanding officers was somebody that Nixon helped bring home from the war. Yes. And it goes back to when Richard Nixon was in World War II. He, he was in the Navy and he served in the South Pacific in, in World War II. And he knew what it was like to be at war, isolated from his family, far away, thousands of miles away. And when he became president, we had over 500 naval aviators that were being held as POWs in Vietnam. And he refused to end the war until he could bring those men home unconditionally, which he did. And one of them was Rodney Allen Knutson. Rodney Allen Knutson was one of the longest held and most extensively tortured POWs. He could have easily been medically retired because of his his injuries. Very much like uh, Senator John McCain. Yes, he was actually uh, a a, a roommate of McCain's in the Hanoi Hotel. Oh, man. Um, he, he, Rodney Allen Knutson stayed in the Navy and then I come rolling along in the mid 1980s between high school and college and, and Rodney Allen Knutson is my commanding officer and he was so incredibly inspirational for a man to go through that because he would sit down and he would tell you what he went through 
and he stayed in to command young you know men and women like myself and he encouraged me to go to college and law school and so then i find myself at cal state fullerton where i'm volunteering at the nixon library and i meet nixon and I had happened to have a shipmate that I served on the uh, the USS Mobile, will, Mobile with, with uh, Rodney Allen Knudsen. And I reconnected with that shipmate in 2009 when I took my daughter to the commissioning of a U.S. Navy ship in Long Beach to show her Navy tradition and service the way that I had been taught by these, you know, Captain Knudsen and uh, other sailors. And that led to me spending some time with the mayor of Whittier out on a Navy warship and talking to the mayor of Whittier, you know, because at this point in time, I had you know been a docent at the Nixon Library in 91, 92, and then I was off to law school and married, having kids, building a legal career. And now I'm you know going out on a Navy ship talking to the mayor of Whittier, and I just kind of offhand pointed out that you know Nixon grew up in Whittier, and he must have all the uh, locations where he was born and raised there um, you know, designated, and he said, no, we lost track of all that. And that's what inspired me to make the map, but if, if you look at it, had you know Richard Nixon not been in the Navy, certainly if Ronnie Allen Knutson had not been in the Navy, or if I had not been in the Navy, none of this would have ever happened. Wow. And so that naval connection is really interesting well, to me. And if Nixon had failed in getting the unconditional release of those Navy, aider, Navy aviators, you would never have had him as a commanding officer. Right. And so. I probably wouldn't have gone to college. And uh, Wow. Law I mean, school. Like, talk about changing life's trajectories there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, you know, so, but it, and I think particularly, I really enjoyed, in a lot of ways, the book is also not just about Nixon, but about Whittier and about kind of growing up in, idyllic probably not the correct word, but but a, a much simpler time when Orange County was Orange Groves and, and, and Whittier was a very simple place to grow up. It was a, originally a Quaker colony. Right. It started off as a Quaker colony in 1887 uh, when uh, two people, Aquila Pickering and Jonathan Bailey, bought one ranch, which was all of Whittier. It had one house on it, which is now the Bailey House, and it's still preserved in Whittier. And they, they divvied up the, the, the acreage into plots and, and put them up for sale in May of 1887. And then Hannah Millhouse's family moved out 10 years later in 1897. And then ten, about 10 years after that, Frank Nixon moved out from Ohio. And he met Hannah Nixon on Valentine's Day, 1908. They courted for 131 days, and then they were married. And they were married for 48 years, and the marriage had five boys. But the, 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 the town of Whittier at that time, you know, now you could start in North Los Angeles and drive almost to San Diego, and it's just one, you know, stucco community after another. Yeah, one continuous block of housing and, and <laughs> right. strip malls. Right, but back then, you know, Pasadena, Whittier, Pomona, um, you know. And, and the, there was space in between all of thousands those Thousands and thousands yeah. of acres, and, and so everything was balkanized, and um, and it was very country. Like, even in uh, Yorba Linda, where Nixon was born in, in 1920, he, his, he was born there in 1913, and his family moved back to Whittier in 1922. In 1920, when he was seven years old, there were 350 people living in Yorba Linda. It was just wide open. Wow. You know, dirt roads, uh, you know, hardly any services whatsoever. I mean, we just don't think of California that way. And I think people have kind of lost a little bit of the sense of, of what California was before World War II. Absolutely. And Nixon never lost that sense of it because one of the things he loved and one of the reasons why he pushed so much of the environmental program that he did was 
the open spaces, the clean air, the fresh water, the Pacific Ocean. And he those things stuck with him from that growing up in in Southern California and he brought them into fruition in the White House. And so they weren't really, you know, transactional policies the way so many political things get done because it's it's transactional, whereas he really believed in these things and, and, and brought them into being as a result of his growing up in Southern California. My father actually, he was a mechanical engineer, but uh, energy system specialist, and he went to work for the EPA shortly after it was created during the Nixon administration. And if you ask people today which president created the EPA, no one would guess Nixon. <laughs> no one. Like, no one would think that that was the environmental president. Agreed. My, my son is on the surf team in high school, and I take him down to San Onofre. And whenever we're down there, I always ask people, do you know who opened this up? And they, they're like, they have no idea. And it was Richard Nixon. He opened up <laughs> San Onofre to, to, the, to the United States of Surfing. So wow, what, what, was your, yeah. what was your book writing history before this one? I never thought I would write a book. I never thought, I certainly never thought I'd write a book about Richard Nixon. I, I have no book writing history. I'm a trial attorney. I, I, I write briefs. Um, so research is something that you're used to doing. Yes, I love research. And, and what kind of casework, like what, what kind of trial do you work on? I litigate real property issues um, almost always. Uh, it's, it's either business relationships or, or real property relationships, but it, the, those, the tentacles of those kinds of disputes can go all over where it could be children stealing their parents' property and I'm suing to get it back or partners fighting over how a partnership was operated and you know someone felt, feels that you know, there was a breach of fiduciary duty or some crazy thing. So a lot of it is is very detail specific, but what was really interesting to me in terms of how my profession helped me with writing this book is, as an attorney, people come to me and they tell me their confidences. And they want to tell me and have me believe a certain thing. And then I have to go and examine the evidence. And, and that's really what I did with this, where I have a narrative that I've always understood to be, you know, Richard Nixon's life from my education. And then I went and I looked at the evidence and the evidence brings you to a different conclusion as to this, this narrative of the public man that, that is in our, our American culture. Well, you know, so much of, of the Nixon legacy now that we see is entirely consumed by Watergate and the resignation and the absolute lowest professional point uh, for this man. And so... Of course, you get a very different image than if you take the, you know, the, the career in Toto. I mean, he was vice president under Eisenhower, and and that had a, a little bit of a rocky start. He had to make the checkers speech, uh, which uh, I watched over and over again because I wrote a paper about it in college, and it was one of those. And, and Nixon, as I recall, was upset about the checkers speech because he thought he had more time than he did, and he didn't get his chance to make the the appeal. Uh, but he was basically fighting to stay on the ticket. He'd been accused of having a slush fund. And I, I love parts of that speech where he says, my wife, Pat, has a fine Republican, <laughs> Republican <cloth> coat. <laughs> she doesn't have a fur coat. And we have a little dog. And the young one calls her checkers. And we're not giving it back. And it's, just, it's a great speech. And yet for, for so many Americans today, everything they know about Richard Nixon starts and ends at the checkers speech and Watergate. 
Very true. Yeah. I think it would be hard-pressed to get people to go back to the checker speech. Uh, you, that's a really good point. Maybe only because I'm so old that I remember the checker speech. But I think you're exactly right. How, how Besides your book, the importance of making today's society, who everything they know about anybody comes from two-minute bits off of a TV station. Hey, 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 don't not. Oh, sorry, not the, except the weather. The weather is, that's take, deep. Take that, it easy, pal. So, when we get past all of that, what is the legacy for Nixon coming up? How do we teach today's kids that what they know about Nixon might not be correct and that there's a different story? You, you, can, you can translate from what's happening today and what's happened in recent history to Richard Nixon's life and, and the experiences that, that Richard Nixon had and, and that our country had as well by virtue of his service. If you look at the young life of Richard Nixon, you know, he's, he's eighth grade class president and he writes what he wants to accomplish in his life is to graduate from one year high school and go to college and law school so that he could be of some good to the people. That's his life's dream, which he essentially accomplishes. But by the time he's in the 10th grade, he's in constitutional oratorical contest sponsored by the Los Angeles Times. Wow. And he's really researching the constitution and he determines that the United States constitution is the finest hand struck by man. And he's very dedicated to the principles of the Constitution. Now, you fast forward with his life and his service in World War II and his service in his community leading up to World War II and then his work as a congressman and as vice president. And he's in the 1960 election. In 1960, the election was so close. It was the closest election ever. If one half of one vote was changed in each, each precinct, then the election outcome is different. And there was a lot of talk over election fraud and shenanigans in that, that election. There were a lot of calls for Nixon to challenge the results, which he refused to do. Right. In fact, Eisenhower wanted him to, to file a legal challenge, and Eisenhower's cabinet was willing to raise the money to fund the legal challenge. And there was a gentleman named Earl Mazzo, who was a reporter for the New York uh, Herald Tribune. He was writing a 12-part series of articles based on his research of election fraud that he found in Chicago and in Texas. And after four of those articles were published, and they were being picked up by the Washington Post and, and all the major papers, Nixon calls him up and says, I'd like to go out to lunch with you. And it's early December. And mind you, by this time, Nixon and Kennedy had already met. And Kennedy had even told Nixon when they met, you know, well, nobody really knows what the outcome of the election is. And... Mazo sits down with Nixon and spends 45 minutes telling him about all this election fraud that he's uncovered. And then Nixon tells him, that's interesting, but look at all of these countries around the world that look to our country as the beacon of democracy. And we don't have fraudulent elections in our country. And we cannot have, during these times of the Cold War, a president who's on the dock for a year while we're trying to sort out who actually won this. And so the bottom line is, is that John Kennedy won the election, and that's the way it is. And Mazo, excuse my language, but Mazo looked at him and said, I thought he was a goddamn fool. <laughs> and he refused to kill the stories. So Nixon went to his publisher and got his publisher to kill the stories. And Nixon then announced and certified the election of John Kennedy. It was the first time in over 100 years that the sitting vice president had to certify the election of his opponent to become president. And and then Richard Nixon retired to private life and came back out to California and started practicing law. But there, 
you know, two years ago, we went, or three years ago, we, for the past three years, we've been going through something fundamentally different. And it's really that service over, uh, service over self that Nixon did. And if you even look at Watergate, you know, we talked earlier about all of his accomplishments in office. Well, he never had a Republican House. He never had a Republican Senate. And he knew that if he fought Watergate, it would be prolonged and he could win. He might lose. But it would, it would, that would really be about himself. And he knew it was in the country's best interest with everything going on between, you know, the conflict in the Middle East uh, after the Yom Kippur War and the relationships with, you know, the Soviet Union and opening of China, that it was better to have consistency in our country. And so he left. And the one thing I think he miscalculated is I don't think he, 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 he appreciated the magnitude with which it would be held against him. Yeah. But it really is a matter of service over self and not this you know, devious Machiavellian person uh, with, with all of these ill ideas or, or vicious ideas. That's, that's a great reference because we do view often, and he's painted often as, as a Machiavellian figure. And, and I, I agree with you that, that I don't, he certainly didn't start out as that. And after his exile and his years as kind of the elder statesman of foreign policy, I don't think you can look at him that way. And it's really also incredible that if you look back 50 years ago, when we were dealing with a conflict in the Middle East and uh, a hostile Russia and uh, an election that could have been called into question, what, what are we doing now? Like, have we made any progress in those 50 years? It's been 50 years. All that's happened is I've gotten older. That's right. Like, we're still doing... Um, I want to point out something. Um, you do meticulous research. Because if you get this book, and I would encourage anybody who's, who's a history fan or a California buff, doesn't matter if you're a Nixon buff, uh, I think that you'll find this book really interesting. Your notes start on page 293, your notes, <laughs> and they end on page 419. Yes. I mean, my God. So you what, did a little bit of research I mean, th- for the that's, book. Honestly, it's about a third of the book <laughs> are the it research is. notes. It is. And, you know, my publisher asked me to uh, trim my notes. And I said, you know, no one's ever written a book like this before. And I think you're going to want the notes there to back it up because it's the evidence. Because this isn't, I'm not, I'm not twisting what is being said. I'm laying it out for the people and I'm showing you the evidence. And if anyone wants to question it, I've given you all of the evidence. Go look it up and question it and see for yourself what it, what it shows. And it, it, it is quite a bit. I will tell you, I interviewed over 60 Nixon intimates and, um, you know, six, over 600 oral histories and then 125,000 pages of documents of the, the oral uh, or of the National Archives. And, you know, what was fascinating about that is so many books have been written about Richard Nixon and everyone talks about everything that they've looked at. Well, when Richard Nixon and his staff would put you know, documents together, they'd either staple them or paperclip them, and then they'd put them in boxes. And stuff them into a bathroom in right. his house. Yeah, and, stuff them oh, in a bathroom no, in a house. Yeah, 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 that was a different one. <laughs> but, but they end up at the National Archives, and now if you want to look through documents... If they're paper clipped or stapled, then you have to give them to the archivist. Then they remove those things, and then they separate all the papers. And that's what that was the process I had to go through. I spent seven weeks in the National Archives, over you know fr- from opening to closing every day, and 
nine times out of ten, the documents had never been touched before, and uh, they had to be separated. You know, the staples had rusted through like the were, papers and the paper clips. You were touching history. Oh, it was fascinating. Yeah. I, and I would find documents that were misfiled and 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 give them to me. It was it really was touching history. It was it was. Did you keep a paper clip? I mean, like to have a no. You <laughs> oh, man. because when you go in the archives, was, other than uh, Sandy Berger, I think who was uh, Clinton's just oh, national security advisor. She took. Uh, he, took <laughs> he did take some. Stuffed them in his trousers, as right. I recall. Right. Well, so by the time I got there, you know, you, you go in and you can't take anything with you. And uh, it, it, all you could do is photograph the, the documents and they check everything to make sure you don't have anything. But it was it was fascinating. It was it was truly fascinating. Was there like a firework moment? You turned a page and you read something and I was and you were like, wow. The letter that I referenced when uh, I talked about the, the, the classmates uh, voting him big man on campus and then writing him a letter talking about how they, they all knew he was destined to be great. Mm-hmm. That was where I, 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 was, I just, you know, because I've held the original letter with the ink signatures on it. And I just, I could see at that point that this was a fundamentally different life than what everyone naturally or uh, has, has been led to believe about Richard Nixon's life. And Nixon's cousin, Jasmine West, who was a, a famous novelist. She wrote Friendly Persuasion, which um, uh, Cary Grant was uh, in, poor, poor, uh, in the movie, played the lead, and it was nominated for the Academy Award. But she said something that, I, I don't even think she was talking about Nixon when she said it, but it's really a fascinating statement, which is, we want facts to, to match our preconceptions. And when they don't, it's easier to ignore the facts than to change our preconceptions. And that really is what this book about Richard Nixon is all about. This is, uh, you know, that's a symptom. You're describing an enormous symptom in our society today that unfortunately cable news and social media caters to. We would much rather cater to the preconception than demonstrate a fact. And I think that's where we've really gone sorely wrong. Uh, we micro-target our audience. Yeah. It's like find people who agree with the narrative and then tell them the narrative because then they'll watch. And it's, it's a pretty awful part. Did, did anybody try to push you away from this project? Tim Naftali was the director of the National Archives at the Nixon Library when I was doing um, my early research for the book. And he had come through one day with uh, David Fierro, who was the um, National Archivist. And uh, Tim, there's four researchers in the library. And, and Tim was a, 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 a um, he has a negative view of Richard Nixon. And um, he came over and he went to each of the researchers that were in the archives that day and was asking them what they were doing. And he got to me and I showed him my map and I told him what I was doing. And he, he quickly was dismissive of me. And then when he brought in David, this, and this was the best part of it all, when he brought in David Fierro afterwards with a photographer, he took him to each of the other tables to meet with those researchers and spend a lot of time. And then he was trying to buy passed me and David Fierro looked over and he, he asked me what I was doing and I started telling him and I showed him the map and he ended up spending more time with me and he actually even wrote me a letter afterwards and told me how much he loved the map and the work that I was doing and uh, that, that, that was very telling I thought at the time because um, it, it really was someone in charge of those archives that was very negative about the whole process. Did he ever change his opinion after any of the information you were able to provide? Not to my knowledge. No. The facts didn't meet the preconceptions. So, well, I think you know, it's a, yeah. changing people's minds about Nixon is one of those difficult things to do in the world. Uh, and I don't, I don't know that you're making a case to change people's minds. I think you're just 
telling the broader story because we we pick and choose the parts of the story to be told. Uh, you know, we, we forget about the fact that he and, and JFK were actually very friendly, uh, that it was there wasn't a great deal of animosity in that campaign. Uh, you know, we, we forget about those sorts of things because now every campaign has to be, if you disagree with me, you hate me. So, we, you know, we're now we're, we're mad. You know, it's just, it was a different time in politics. Right. And in that campaign, um, he, Nixon, you know, he, he was friends with John Kennedy. He had visited John Kennedy when, when Kennedy was in the hospital in the 1950s in traction with his back problems. Well, they and, both had a background in the Navy. Absolutely. And they, actually, they were both, um, they served around the same islands, you know, where the the PT-109 went down, is down by um, Vela La Vela and Bougainville and those islands, and those were the islands that Nixon was stationed on, and they even uh, talked one time about how they were probably at the same place at the same time, and they, neither one of them had any idea, and wow. uh, Nixon wouldn't allow um, you know, talk about religion or health or anything personal, and that was one thing about his campaigns that has been widely misconstrued, was he would attack on policies, and rightly so, but his campaigns really didn't focus on the personality of the individual, and it wasn't a personal attack the way it is today, to, to your point. Yeah. Maybe maybe this was just me, but I mean, I certainly knew about Kennedy and PT-109 and his military history. I didn't know anything about Nixon's military history. And, and again, that could be that I just didn't read the book when I was supposed to in high school. Well, I don't think but, Nixon talked about it. But his. that's what I'm wondering. Was that also something that he kind of kept? Was it, a, was it on purpose that they didn't talk about that while he was running against Kennedy? I think it's more a, a, a matter of Nixon's trait was to not talk about himself other than in policy matters and if you look at his speeches you know he doesn't really quote scripture even though he was very religious and he he just he he viewed everything in terms of there was personal life and then there's political life and and the two don't really mix but I, I've been doing quite a bit of research on his World War II time and it's it's fascinating because he asked to be sent to combat and and he said you know, serving in combat areas is, is, is very dangerous and potentially fatal, but serving in the rear when you know your friends and colleagues are in battle areas is worse. And that takes a lot of guts. Uh, you know, you're talking about a guy that was seasick, but he joined the Navy. And, um, you know, in the year before he asked for sea, sea duty, uh, there was 117 Navy uh, vessels that were sunk, about one every three days. And yet he, he gets seasick, and, and, and he knows the dangers of that, and he, he, he keeps asking for sea duty. They sent him to the, the South Pacific, so he was on an island and never on a ship. But you know, that takes a lot of guts. That's a lot of guts and gumption. That's not uh, someone shying away from a, a, a challenge. And, and that's one thing that really stands out in his life as well is, you know, there's a narrative about Richard Nixon, which is that he always wanted to be a part of the Northeast establishment and that, you know, he was he was upset that he couldn't be educated in the Northeast. And then when he graduated from Duke Law School, he, he was upset he couldn't get an offer from a, a New York law firm. And so he returned home to Whittier, bitter and insecure. Well, the reality is that 
he went to Whittier College because his older brother Harold was dying of tuberculosis. Harold died when he was a junior in college. That's right. And then when Nixon served in the South Pacific, he he did so well he in those combat areas, he ended up with the letter of commendation and a couple of battle stars. And he then is transferred to the Northeast and he's settling war contracts as the war is winding down. He's negotiating the resolution of the contracts between big business and, and, and the government. And several of the people he had served with um, were successful people up in the New York area. And Nixon was in New York, and he was he was actually at, at, at 50 Church Street, which is right where the Oculus is now, uh, next to where the World Trade Centers were. So he's in the heart of Manhattan, and ultimately he's so successful he becomes responsible for settling war contracts within a 500-mile of uh, radius of New York, and he's living down in Maryland with, with Pat, and the war ends. He, he could have stayed in New York City if he wanted to at that point. But he chose to come home to Whittier and run against Jerry Voorhees for Congress. Now, Nixon... Who was an overwhelming favorite. Overwhelming. Um, Jerry Voorhees was a five-time incumbent Democrat. He was voted the best congressman west of the Mississippi and rated as having the third safest seat in the House of Representatives. And here comes this young Richard Nixon and takes him on. And Voorhees said had beaten the Republicans soundly in each of his reelections to the point where the Republican Party kind of washed their hands of the race. And so it was local Republicans that formed a committee of 100 to select a candidate. And that's how they picked Richard Nixon. So he comes home to Whittier and he works his tail off and he beats Jerry Voorhees. He even beat Jerry Voorhees in Voorhees' hometown at Diamond Bar. Wow. And so it's, it's really the opposite story of this idea of him being the bitter outsider. It's really him being the go-getter that is, that, that is succeeding at every turn. Let's go some years down the road now. My impression is um, one of his failings was by the people who he surrounded himself with. Um, like Bibi Rebozo? I didn't know Bibi personally, <laughs> but I, I heard there were some issues there. Um, the, the folks around the whole Watergate, Haldeman, all, all of these people, was, I guess my question is, was it your determination at the end of all of this that he may have been involved a little bit in the cover-up, but he was never involved in the original planning of Watergate, and that he just had a bunch of dummies around him? I don't think that he had anything to do with the, the break, and I don't think he had any advanced knowledge of, of that. I think that it, it, it takes, a, it, and I would really like to research this quite a bit more, but if you look at the, the way that the, the information pyramids up to the top, everyone that is involved in Watergate is only passing information up the chain of command in a way that makes them look best. And, you know, John Dean, for example, John, it, it seems to me that John Dean was significantly more involved when, in Watergate and probably orchestrating it than has, he's ever been to, given the credit for. And um, I don't know how much Haldeman knew in advance. I, I will tell you, there's an HBO show called The Plumbers mm -hmm. that uh, I think is hysterical. <laughs> and it's... It, it is it, kind of a comedy. It, it is a comedy, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but it, it also kind of reflects like how crazy the whole Watergate thing is right. anyways. You're going to break into the Democrat National Headquarters and, and what? And, and what are you possibly going to gain from right. that? But a couple of young, you know, low-level staffers, that would probably be a great idea to them. Like, you kind of see shenanigans like that in politics all the time. And it was a remarkable thing because he was an overwhelming fan. I mean, like, they didn't – there was no need. He oh, was gonna, there was no way he was going to lose the election. No, he was going to win – 
in a landslide one way or the other. Well, and he did, and he yeah, you he, know, did. he he won 520 electoral um, college votes, 96.6 electoral electoral college. He, he, he it was overwhelming uh, uh, election success, and so there was no need whatsoever for it. Where he probably well, absolutely uh, ran afoul was seeking to protect people and probably not fully appreciating the magnitude of the entire um, process. And there's a lot of, it's almost like there's a confluence of influences because, you know, Richard Nixon and Franklin Roosevelt are the only American politicians to serve or, or to, to, to be on five national ballots. And Richard Nixon is the only American politician to serve two terms as vice president and two terms as president, be elected to each office. And he's incredibly successful. And so the Democrat Party has an interest in, in, in not seeing him be as successful as he is. And, you know, he described it to, to Bob Haldeman one time as saying that, you know, there's this gnat flying around me, which is Watergate. And then suddenly I got swallowed by the gnat. And I wonder how much of that is true and how much he really understood about Watergate and what was going on with Watergate. Because there's one thing that he did do after Watergate that I thought was very revealing about his character. You know, there's a guy named Dwight Chapin that was on his staff, and Dwight ended up going to jail for obstruction of justice. And after Dwight was released from prison, and Dwight was married and had a couple of daughters, Richard Nixon had him come down to um, San Clemente, to La Casa Pacifica, and meet with him and bring his daughters with him and his wife. And Richard Nixon sat with his daughters, who were like 10 and 12 years old, and said, You're, you will hear many things about your father I want you to know that your father was serving the president of the United States and your father's an honorable man and, and that you always need to be proud of your father and, 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 and appreciate that. And that says a lot about the individual in terms that he would even think to do that for an underling. Yeah. That, that level of loyalty. There was a level of, of I mean, he, he could be a bitter person, though. And I think some of the seeds of that, and he was in government for a very long time. Uh, as vice president, lost the election. And I never sensed that he was particularly bitter about losing to Kennedy. I think he was hurt by the, the election loss and, and the closeness of it. The loss of the governorship in California and the famous quote, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. There was a little flash of, and that seemed like, here's, here's a man who's really bitter. He's come home and he's running for the governor of his home state and gets rejected. And there, I think, you might see a little flash of that edge that Nixon had. He definitely did have, a, have, have an edge to him, which, you know, is part of him being a human being. Yeah. Um, of course. One thing that's, that, that I discovered through this research that made that race really fascinating to me is Richard Nixon always said that what separates the men from the boys is that the men run for office to do something and the boys run for office to be something. And... If you look at California... That's a pretty darn good quote. That's really good. You can apply that to a lot of what's going on today. <laughs> you, you can. And, and if you look at it in the context of that campaign, you know, because if you, if you look at the period that Richard Nixon was in politics from 1946 to 1962, Earl Warren is governor of California... His lieutenant governor is Goody Knight. Um, William Nolan is the senator from uh, San Francisco. His family owns the San Francisco Chronicle. And 
Richard Nixon is, the, uh, you know, a, polit- a, a congressman, then a senator, and then he's picked to be the vice presidential candidate. And, and then Earl Warren is nominated to the United States Supreme Court. And Goody Knight is elevated to the the governorship, governorship. and then Goody Knight wins uh, his his own governorship uh, uh, election, and Bill Nolan is the president of the Senate. And so you have the vice president, the president of the Senate, uh, you know Goody Knight, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, all Californians. And by 1958, you know Earl Warren is basically out of the picture because he's he's in Washington D.C. now, and Bill Nolan runs. Instead of running for re-election to the United States Senate, he runs against Goody Knight for the governorship. And instead of running for re-election, Goody Knight runs for Bill Nolan's seat. And they, they, it, they, 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 they irritated the electorate so much so that they both lost. And that's when Pat Brown comes into office. And it fractured the California Republican Party. So then Nixon runs for president in 60 and loses. And in 62, the Republican Party comes to him and says, we're so fractured, there's only one guy that, that, can, bring can, us together. that can bring us together. And, and, and they talk him into running. And he said it's the first time in his life he ran for office for the wrong reason and um and and he runs but during that campaign the democrats had a a million voter um uh, benefit over the republicans and so he had to have every republican vote from plus a million democrats and the john birch society came out and uh, was opposed to Eisenhower, and Nixon was opposed to the John Birch Society. And the John Birch Society started endorsing candidates, and Richard Nixon, instead of endorsing the candidates that John Birch Society was endorsing, he told the Republican candidates that running in the, the, the general election, you have to choose. You have to make a choice. If you side with the John Birch Society, I will not campaign with you or for you. And in doing that, he knew that he was no longer going to unite the party. Right. He's not going to have all the Republicans vote for him, and he's not going to get the Democrats to vote. So he knows he's in a losing um, situation, and I think that's that in part really kind of feeds that um, angst that he's feeling about the way the press handles the the the, the whole episode that he finds himself in, and. But wouldn't it be nice if we had more politicians making decisions like that? Well, I mean, it was a principled decision. That's what I mean. Uh, and, and you can look back at Nixon and, and, and the most unprincipled chapter, or certainly in the top two or three, uh, uh, of the American presidency. But, uh, but it is not reflective of his entire career. In fact, it's really antithetical, which is what I like. And, and, and you know, I'll be honest, uh, like, again, I... I I've been fascinated by Nixon from young. My father really, he didn't adore Nixon. He didn't adore any individual politician, but he really respected Nixon. And Watergate really disillusioned him. And it also was a sea change in how we view politicians, how we view politics, how we treat politicians. The, the gloves came off at this point. And every, like, I think... Most people were aware that Kennedy had extramarital affairs. What? I know this comes as a shock to you, uh, Randy. Uh, Like, there were things that we overlooked. Perhaps for the greater good or perhaps not. But after Watergate, nothing gets overlooked. And in fact, we, we, we dig a little deeper and we're a lot less respectful. Uh, and, and 
because you know maybe they're they're due less respect. Well, we start finding the Sparrow Agnews of the world. Who spent a lot of time here in the desert with Frank Sinatra? They were great buddies when Spiro resigned. Oh well, then I like him. <laughs> Why would you not? Sparrow Agnew? Oh come on, he's a nice Greek guy who just, look. He was the mayor of Boston, not Boston, Baltimore. Yeah, but he had to resign because he was taking money from, like, Vinny's tailor shop or something, It was something, tax right? evasion, I believe. Oh, it's something more important well, than that. Who wants to pay taxes? You want to pay ta- You like paying taxes? No, that's why I stopped. Okay, well, well you're, you're the Spiro Agnew, Agnew of our time. Well, I'm sure the governor's salary at that time was very low. So they, they needed to enhance it. <laughs> that's right. I'm going to pay you the biggest compliment I can pay you. <clears throat> I feel different about Richard Nixon right now than I did when we started this conversation. Thank you. And I'm really interested in reading more about this and finding out this information because he's a different man than I thought he was. So thank you for that, Paul. My pleasure. Thank you. I... That's really what I would like to, to... That's the highest compliment because... You know, you had started to mention a little while ago. I mean, this is like I'm, I'm pushing a boulder up the hill when I'm talking about Richard Nixon, but his life was so much more fascinating. And um, he, you know, the way I got my agent, um, because like writing a, a book and getting an agent is like, uh, it, it's not something that just, you know, falls in your lap. I, I told the, when I was interviewing an agent, I told her, you know, we're spending all of this time reevaluating all of these great politicians, uh, great American politicians, and, and we're finding out that they're not any good. Well, if we're going to do that, why don't we also take the one that we don't think is any good and reevaluate him? And, and she was like, I, I like that angle, and I, I'm, I'm going to be your agent. If you can think of that, then I'm willing to be your agent. I like and, that. Are you doing Warren Harding next? I, you know, I'm going to do uh, I'm going to do the, the World War Two years. Um, no, no, not Warren Harding. So I'm you gonna, have a book. You're you're working the next on. book. I'm working on the the World War Two time period because it's that's so fascinating the way that the this the the war in the South Pacific progressed and 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 the strategic measures that were done and the way that the campaigns were done it, it it really fascinates me and Nixon was right there in the heart of it he was you know you know no United States president has ever been a member of the Marine Corps yet Richard Nixon is the only United States president that served in a Marine Corps combat unit and he did it in the heart of World War II he just so many of those things about him it's such an eye opener um, that I. I really am interested in, 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 in exploring his service because no one's written about his service other than, you know, 10 pages in a book here, five pages in a book there. Nobody's dedicated uh, the time um, or resources to, to really get into the archives and, and, and get to the meat of what went on in the South Pacific. Well, I, one of the things I really like about this book, I don't think anybody should be ever judged by the worst moment or the worst decision in their life. Uh, because we all make bad decisions. Well, I absolutely hope that. I mean, choosing to do this podcast could go down as one of... <laughs> no, and, 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 and we're, we're sitting here recording ourselves, but can you imagine if, if everything you said for the last five years was recorded? <laughs> Who could survive that? Uh, Butterfield to be coming in later to <laughs> play some of the old recordings. But, and I don't, you know, I, don't, I don't view you as a Nixon apologist at all. And uh, and I'm I'm certainly not. I mean, I think he has to be evaluated on on the good and the, it, you know, and the bad that he did. But I like the full telling of the story. I like the fact that you flesh out that he was a man with a career uh, that, that transcends 
and goes beyond what happened in Watergate. And I think we should all be better students of history. And I think a story like this could probably be told for virtually every president, uh, good or bad. And uh, so I really appreciate the book, and I appreciate your time, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I appreciate uh, coming out and meeting with both of you. This has been a lot of fun. It, it, it's it's. It's actually very fun to to sit and engage with people and have a, a, a thorough discussion when everyone's willing to just discuss and listen to each other and hear each other out. And that's, in a bar. That's and why, in a bar. And that's why it's called Big Conversations <laughs> Little Bar. You can get the book. It's called Richard Nixon, California's Native Son. The author is Paul Carter, and the foreword is written by Richard Nixon's eldest daughter, Tricia Nixon-Cox. You can find it at all of your favorite uh, booksellers, including Amazon.com. So please, if you've got a, a, a politico in your life, if you've got a history aficionado, if you've got someone who loves California history, pick up this book. They will thoroughly enjoy it. It is the holiday season approaching. Agreed. Paul Carter, thank you so much. John McMullen, thank you so much for enduring another <laughs> podcast with me and my co-host and great friend, Randy Florence. We'll be back next week with another edition of Big Conversations Little Bar. Thank you for joining us for Big Conversations, Little Bar, with Patrick Evans and Randy Florence. Hear our entire library of episodes from BigConversationsLittleBar.com or most major podcast portals. This podcast is a production of the Mutual Broadcasting System. 